Hey everybody, if you got a Bible, Matthew chapter 21, happy Palm Sunday. I realize if you don't have much of a church background, you probably have no idea what Palm Sunday means, but historically, Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling a number of Old Testament prophecies, and maybe as a kid, you even had a program at church where you waved around some palm branches, and I've seen dunes come riding in on donkeys and all kinds of stuff, but to each their own, that's not what's important. What's important for you to come to understand is that today is the start of Holy Week, the week where over 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire, under pressure from the Jewish establishment, crucified a man named Jesus, which, listen, nobody really debates that anymore. There's just too much evidence to support the fact that Jesus was a real man, that he was indeed living in Jerusalem, and that he was put to death by the Romans. In fact, he was such a significant figure that historians took the time to record his name. Think about that. How many other people did the Romans crucify that we don't even know their name? And the reason I wanted to point all that out is because conveniently, the story that we're about to read, it takes place on the Wednesday of Holy Week. So let's set the scene. It's Wednesday. Jesus is in the temple. He most likely started his morning off with a fantastic cup of coffee. Probably a white chocolate mocha, breve, with whipped topping. And after letting that refresh his palate, he began to teach. I know my best sermons come after a visit to Starbucks or Chick-fil-A. I mean, you put a, a black coffee and a chicken, egg, and cheese biscuit in a man, there's just some divine revelation that starts to occur. So I anticipate that Jesus did the same thing. Now, his presence alone on this morning in particular, dominates the temple scene because the day before the people witnessed him on Taco Tuesday come into Jerusalem and with religious indignation they watched him flip over tables and whip merchants like a racehorse and check it, nobody stopped him. I mean, I know you're taught that Jesus is gentle, meek, and mild, but he's also the commander of the Lord's army. And when he goes Incredible Hulk on these businessmen, nobody tries to intervene. Subsequently, he has a very captive audience, and this church has now become his classroom. So it's a very excited crowd that is listening to Jesus, still living off the high of his triumphal entry and cleansing of the temple. Each person within earshot is hoping that this is the Messiah that they've been looking for. They're excited. They're enthusiastic. But at the same time, the leaders of Israel hate him. They despise him. They now hate him even more, and they're more furious than ever because he's left their businesses in shambles and their theology in crumbles, which prompted them to ask by what authority he did this, which his response is essentially, by my own authority, I am God. So they've always wanted him dead, but now they want him dead even more because he's blasphemous. He's claiming to be God. 
and within two days they will have him executed at the hands of the Roman government. But first, he teaches this parable. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. How many of y'all at this point are not messing around with the tenants anymore? You're going down to Florida. You're going to find our girl Carol, and you're going to figure out how to hide a body. You need to pick up some sardine oil and a tiger, but that's not what this man does. What does he do? Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Lord Jesus, we know you are more than a prophet. You are the very Son of God. You are Lord of our lives and the author and perfecter of our faith. Speak to us now as we try and become more like you in the days to come. Lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to understand. We ask all of this in your powerful name. Amen. In the world of real estate, there are bad tenants and there are bad landlords. Neither are particularly easy to deal with. I know when I was about 26, my landlord threatened to evict me. She said, look, son, don't you think it's about high time for you to start living out on your own? Which, that's not right. And I don't know if you've been in a situation like that before, but it can be very difficult. In my research of all this, however, I found some helpful suggestions on how to deal with bad tenants and bad, bad landlords alike. One website offered me six creative ways to get rid of bad tenants. It included things like raise the rent, don't renew the lease, offer cash for the return of keys, or another site offered me 99 signs I shouldn't rent to that tenant. I found out that there's a national tenant reporting agency with a website called donotrent2.com. I fortunately did not find any of your names there, but perhaps you've been using an alias. I don't know. What I do know is what was never included in any of the tips I read. 
what was never suggested for difficult landlords or difficult tenants. Kill them. You got a bad tenant, you got a bad landlord, hire a hitman. That was never suggested. Yet that was exactly the logical conclusion for the people who were listening to Jesus' story. What was verse 41 say? Bring those wretched wretches to a wretched end. That's a lot of wretching. But here's what I think Jesus is trying to get across. You can kill your ego, or you can kill your eternity, but you can't accommodate both. You might want to jot that down. You can kill your ego, or you can kill your eternity, but you can't accommodate both. See, our problem is, and the message of the Bible is, each person has a suicidal love affair with sin. That's part of the reason Jesus was telling the story. To warn people. Because everybody wants to be their own God. Masters of their own domains. Now, nobody would ultimately say that out loud, but they don't have to. Because we can look at their lives and see how they spend their money. And spend their time. And steward the resources that God has put them in charge with. And if you can be objective for a moment you'll realize that most people are looking for control. But Jesus comes along and says, whoever wants to save his life, they're going to have to lose it. And whoever wants to follow me, they're going to have to take up their cross daily and follow me. And using this analogy of a tenant, he says, you're just renting this life. So this morning, I want to chat to you about having a new lease on life. That's really what's at stake for you. A new lease on life. The first thing you have to know about obtaining a new lease on life is you can kill your ego or you can kill your eternity, but you can't accommodate both. I'll show you this in the parable. There's a man who owns the land. That is representative of God. That's easy enough to understand. God created the world and everything in it. It's his land. He can do whatever he wants. In this case, he decides to plant a vineyard. The vineyard represents Israel. Could have shown you this dozens and dozens of places, but here's an easy one. Jeremiah 2, 21. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. Jeremiah is talking about Israel, and so is Jesus. God put a wall around Israel. He protected them. He gave them a wine press, which is symbolic of income. If the people work hard, God will bless them with the ability to earn money, and because of that... He gave them a watchtower and people to keep them safe. And in short, everything they have is because of God's grace to them. Pretty similar to us, by the way. Every good thing that you have is because of God's grace to you. Now, the vine growers are the religious leaders, primarily the priests and the other religious leaders who have been given the responsibility to shepherd Israel, or in this case, to tend God's vineyard. They're supposed to be harvesting God's fruit. The fact that this landover went away and moved away is symbolic of how God works in biblical history. All the way from the beginning of Israel with Abraham to the coming of Jesus, that long time when the people of God were under the care of certain men, that's represented by God moving away. And while he's away, he still expects a harvest from his vineyard. 
So you can trace this throughout the Old Testament. God first sends judges, then sends kings, then has prophets and priests all to collect his crop. That's how God has decided that he's going to work in the world. In his wisdom and his foresight, he allows us as human beings a certain level of autonomy while he is away. But again, it's still his vineyard and we are expected to harvest his crop. To help the Jews with that, in their history, God sent prophets, priests, and kings to receive the fruit that was due to him. So these men came to represent God and God's will and God's law, and they were to call for obedience and faithfulness back to God. The people, under their care because of their influence, were supposed to represent God to the rest of the world. But as many of you can remember from Old Testament stories, the people are a complete and utter failure in that regard. So instead of heeding the advice of the messengers God sent, the people rejected the judges, and they hated their kings, and they stoned their prophets. Matter of fact, Jewish history tells us the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. So that would hurt. But they hated the prophets so much that Jerusalem became known as the city that kills the prophets. So finally God says about his vineyard, I'm going to send my beloved son, who is none other than Jesus Christ. And they kill him too. Point being, during this Wednesday word that Jesus is preaching in the temple, Jesus is telling Israel its history. He says, you are a vineyard. You have been under the care of certain leaders who were placed by God in responsibility over you that you might produce spiritual fruit. And they failed miserably. And you failed miserably. And when God came in the way of his prophets to demand some spiritual fruit, to call for some spiritual fruit, you mistreated them. You maligned them and even killed some of them. And now God is going to send his son. And what will these same spiritual leaders do? These chief priests and scribes and elders and Pharisees and Sadducees, they will kill the Son. And we know, just two days later, that the hands of the Roman government on Friday morning, soldiers will nail Jesus to a cross. Because the Jewish elite have threatened a riot, screaming for his crucifixion and settling for nothing else. And why? Because they want the inheritance. They want control over God's people. They want control of the vineyard. Their way, their time, it's all we want. Which is why you can kill your ego, or you can kill your eternity, but you can't accommodate both. See, we are tenant farmers. We have been hired by God under contract, gifted and called to go into his world in a responsibility that has no parallel and no equal, and that is to take care of his vineyard in such a way that it will produce fruit that brings glory to God, which I know that culture and the world and all the self-help books on all the shelves will tell you that you're not a tenant, you're an owner. Nobody can run your life for you. Nobody can set goals for you. You have to decide your own values and decide your own agenda. But that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is telling us. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. 
What culture wants to tell you is act like an owner. Yet what the Bible says is act like a tenant. That's why we need a new lease on life. Because on the one hand, we know we're tenants. On the other hand, we hate it. And on the one hand, we know we owe the owner everything. Yet on the other hand, we don't want to give him anything. We want to do life ourselves. We want to take credit for it. And we don't want to admit that it's all a gift. There's a deep, deep conflict that arises out of our lease agreement. Again, it's why we have to kill our ego. Because when you start to think, it's my body, it's my life, it's my money, it's my house, it's my time, they're my possessions, I don't owe God anything, I don't owe anyone anything, it's all mine. You're robbing God of his fruit. And that's the attitude that some of us have. So we don't give to God, and we don't give to others, and we don't cultivate God's land. And so doing what we're essentially communicating is, it's mine. It's not his. It's mine. I owe him nothing. That's an, not an attitude of gratitude. That's an attitude of thievery. So you get the idea. The earth is made by God and every nation belongs to God. You and I were made by God. God has given us life and breath. So the air we breathe, the water we drink, the life we enjoy, the body we inhabit, the things we touch, the places we go, the people we meet, the objects we see, it all ultimately belongs to God. And we're here for his glory. We're here for his service. We're here as his possession. He lavishly is generous to us and he's good to us and he enables us life and we're supposed to reflect his generosity by giving him back spiritual fruit and by giving back to people who God has placed in our lives. Certainly some people will do that while others won't. And the people that do do that, God says your reward is going to be very great. And to the people that don't do that, God says to them that he's going to do two things. The first thing he says he's going to do is he'll destroy them. That's what verse 43 and 44 talk about. Furthermore, this same parable is told in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke records these words of Jesus. He says, God will come and destroy those vine growers. And this is a prophetic statement from Jesus looking forward 40 years from 30 AD when Jesus is crucified to 70 AD when Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, comes in with his great army and quells a rebellion of the Jews and it ends in the destruction of the temple. This is God's divine judgment destroying the vine growers, just like he said he would. But the second thing God does is displace the tenants. There's destruction and then displacement. Jesus says the vineyard will be given to a people who will produce its fruit. That is to say, the vineyard will be taken away from Israel's religious leaders and given over to the people of God. See, the leaders of Israel, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had been given everything. They were entrusted the Old Testament scriptures and the law and the covenants, and they had a responsibility to bring about God's kingdom on earth. But they failed because of their egos. They wanted the power, they wanted the vineyard, and so now it's been given to God's people. That's you, and that is me, and anyone else who claims Jesus as Lord. That's your new lease on life. So write this down. Your new birth is your new lease on life. Your new birth 
is your new lease on life. It's why when one of these Pharisees comes to Jesus, confused by this whole situation, he asks him about the kingdom of God, and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the dude's like, that doesn't make any sense. Am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb? How do you get born again? And you're like, whoa, dude, that's rather graphic. But Jesus says the most famous scripture of all time shortly after that when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the new birth. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this same line of reasoning when he writes, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. To that point, I can't help but wonder, where are you in all of this? Be honest. Have you been born again? Do you have this new lease on life? Or are you acting like the owner? Like it's somehow your vineyard. Like I don't need a new lease I just purchased this land. This is my field. I know the bulk of my life, I pretended like I was a good tenant, but the reality was I was living my life in such a way as if I was the owner of the vineyard. And I didn't watch rated R movies, and I didn't curse, and I wasn't a slave to pornography. And then my senior year of high school, I tore up my knee in a basketball injury, and I blamed God, and I said, this is how you repay me? Like... I kept all the rules. I did what you asked me to do. I was harvesting your fruit. And this I'm working on your farm. And then this happens. And you see what I'm saying? It's like I wanted to be the owner. We all do. It's why Jesus concludes this parable. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. In other words, Jesus is saying there's two options for you. You can fall down in obedience to him as the chief corner stone. And if you do, you're going to be broken to pieces because Jesus is going to reveal things to you that are going to hurt. And he's going to show you how selfish you are. And he's going to show you how your motivations for helping people weren't actually great. And he's going to show you how you're free to have that drink, but you've become a slave to it. And you go too far. And he's going to show you how much anger is actually in your heart. And all those things are God's way of breaking you into pieces. But the good news is, the best news is, slowly, ever so slowly, one step at a time, God is going to take those pieces and start molding you into the image of his son. And we're like jars of clay, cracked pots that God is going to use for his glory and for your joy. But uh, God is rebuilding you piece by piece and it really has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. It's his power inside of you that is making the difference. And if you're living this new lease on live, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Being broken to pieces, it helps and it hurts. But you can see, if you don't humbly kill your ego and allow Jesus to break you into pieces, option two is you get crushed under his power and weight. And listen to me now, he doesn't want that. It's why he told this story. It's supposed to serve to you, serve you as a warning. You can kill your ego, 
or you can kill your eternity, but you can't accommodate both. So what do you want? Your way or God's way? Are you okay with renting? Or do you think you somehow deserve the vineyard? The choice is yours. You get to decide how you're going to live your life. Crushed by the weight of the glory of Jesus or broken to pieces and slowly rebuilt into the joy of the Lord. God, help us now as we humbly submit to you. Help us understand where we are, where we're trying to make our own ownership decisions. God, let us reflect on our life. How are we trying to lead things our way instead of follow you? For those of us that are married, is it there? For those of us working, for those of us that are students, are we majoring in things? Are we trying to do things under our own power? God, whatever it is, help us realize where we need to turn things over to you. Help us realize that you have our best interests in mind, that as we follow you, that's ultimately the only way that we're going to be led to joy and fullness of life. You came to provide those things for us. But we also know at times that can be painful as you reveal to us how we need to be shaped and molded into the image of your son. God, for those people who don't know you, that feel this crushing weight, on their shoulders. God, help them just confess their sin to you now so that this weight can be lifted off of their shoulders that all they have to do is believe. And they'll feel this weight come off of them. For those of us who have accepted you, we know exactly what that feels like. And I'm asking you for just that joy for anybody who hasn't received it yet. God, help us as we try and kill our egos so that we can live in an eternity in heaven with you. Help us this week to be encouraged, to stay healthy, to make the most of a bad situation and a unique situation where we have found ourselves. Help us serve each other in this time of difficulty. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.